All right, just a re refresher for uh, those who weren't here last week. Last week, um, that Sunday, was sort of the end of a very, very busy two-week period, really, because um, we had the Greece funeral on Wednesday. We had the Christmas Day service and then Sunday and everything. And I ran out of days. I ran out of hours to, to prepare something for our study in 1 Corinthians. So I pulled this out, and I figured we can get through this in a Sunday. And then I started getting a little involved in the history in the background here, and Sue thought I was procrastinating, that I was going to drag this out for a few weeks. And as she said that, it's like, you know, that's not a bad idea. Maybe I will procrastinate and drag this out. So we're here again. Um, like I said, this is a little study I, I put together. It was something I put together a few years back as I um, delivered this to a Christian school that had asked me to come and speak to their Bible class. And they wanted this particular subject. So... Um, the subject, of course, being the uh, Reformed view of salvation, or I'm just calling them the doctrines of grace, or TULIP. Um, last week, we did look through <clears throat> the history and background of this, how it comes out of the Reformation, how it comes out of the, um, the debate between authority and the debate between justification that you saw brewing uh, in the early 16th century, uh, with the coming of Martin Luther and his, his uh, you know, nailing of the 95 Theses on the church door in Wittenberg and how that sparked, <coughs> excuse me, how that sparked the, the Reformation and the debate within the Roman Catholic Church. Um, if you remember last week, we said, you know, like I said, it, it really saw, the battle lines were drawn over the issues of authority and over the issues of justification. So what is the rule of faith and practice in the church and what is and how or I should say how is one made right before God so the reform view said that the only rule of faith and life for the church is the scriptures alone the sole infallible rule okay I'm specifying that to say that it doesn't mean that there aren't other authority structures in the church we see that right in even in the Bible right when Paul tells Timothy you know, appoint elders in every church, you know, appoint deacons in every church. These are people who have a certain level of authority in the church, but it's all subsumed under the Word of God. Okay, so the Word of God is the ultimate authority in the church. It is the only infallible authority in the church. Whereas the Roman Catholic Church said, yeah, Scripture is good and necessary, and we do believe it is the Word of God, but we also bring in church tradition, the teaching uh, of the magisterium, and, and tradition. So they have, you know, the scriptures and tradition, they're a dual source of authority in the church. So things that aren't necessarily in the Word of God are found in their traditional teachings and so on and so forth. And then when it comes to the uh, matter of justification, how is one made right before God? Again, the reformers said, you know, going back to the scriptures, the sole authority and you know, rule for faith and life in the church, they found that it is by faith alone. By faith alone, one is made right before God. By faith alone, that instrument by which grace and by which righteousness is given to the, the one who exercises faith, uh, you, know, you are given, imputed, the righteousness of Christ is given to you by faith alone. No other conditions, no other um, thing need to be used. Whereas the 
Uh, Roman Catholic Church, again, said faith is necessary. You need to have faith, but we will add the sacerdotal system, the sacraments. You have to be baptized in order to have grace infused into you. You have to then continue to use the sacraments. Whenever you sin, you have to go confess, and you have to do works of restitution to keep that grace going, and you have to add to it good works. You have to be righteous. Whereas the Reformers said, no, you are made righteous. You are declared righteous by God's Word, by faith alone. Whereas the Roman Catholic Church says, no, you need to be righteous by your own works. And when you die, and if you don't have enough righteousness, you go to purgatory, purges away all the remaining sin in your life, and then you are ushered into heaven. Or if you're one of those few rare individuals like the saints, you are good enough, and you have enough good works in you, and then you're ushered immediately into heaven. So that was the background, the history and background of the debate. Now within the, Re- the Reformed tradition, you had a sort of an in-house debate. Right? This came about 100 years later as a group of students, uh, followers of a, of a Dutch Reformed individual named Jacob Arminius had sort of constructed a point-by-point uh, document um, sort of questioning certain things that the Reformed Church believed. Now, by this time in the early 1600s, you had the Belgic Confession, you had the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Dutch Reformed Churches followed those and subscribed to those. Now, these followers of Arminius said that there are issues that we take within the Belgic Confession. There are certain issues that we take. So they wrote a, an art, a document called the Five Articles of the Remonstrance. So they were to remonstrate as to sort of dispute, okay? They were disputing these, these articles of, of faith in the Belgian Confession. And they presented this to the Dutch Reformed Church in the year 1610. And then, of course, as, because of the way churches work, it takes a long time to get things moving in the church, usually. So eight years later, the Dutch Reformed Church convened the Synod of Dort, and they looked over the articles of the Remonstrance, and they said... We reject all of your articles. And then they wrote the Canons of Dort as sort of their response to the five articles of the Remonstrance, which then becomes our third confessional standard that we in the Reformed Church of the United States can uh, adhere to. So the Belgian Confession, Heidelberg Catechism, and the um, Canons of Dort. And that debate between the Dutch Reformed, you know, the followers of John Calvin, and the followers of Jacob Arminius really boiled down to the issue of who works in salvation. Okay, is it God alone, or is it God plus man's works? Some some things within us. Okay, so it was a debate between monergism, God works alone, or synergism, God works with us in our salvation. And if you remember last time we looked. The Articles of the Remonstrance focused on five key elements of disputation. So they said that election or predestination, the predestination of God or the election of God is conditional. It is conditional. They also said that atonement is universal. That man cannot of himself exercise a saving faith but needs God's prevenient grace. If you remember, I used the Kickstarter kind of example for that. You know, God needs... We need God to sort of kickstart our, our, our work of faith, and then we kind of just go on from there. 
God's grace is necessary, but it does not act irresistibly. And that believers are able to fall away from grace and lose their salvation. That was what the Arminians believed in. That was their position. And they were arguing against specific positions in the Belgic Confession that taught that didn't teach these things. So that, that was the background of the debate. So then we spent the rest of the time looking at the first... Now, if you remember, I said, if you look at the Canons of Dort, it's arranged differently. Okay? They have their, their responses organized in five heads of doctrine. And they deal with unconditional election first. Then they go limited atonement. Then they go total depravity, irresistible grace, and then they go perseverance of the saints. So if you were to take those letters and form an acronym, it would be ULTIP. Okay? Now, I don't know when TULIP began. It wasn't here. It was m much later. They rearranged it, and it became TULIP. So they took the T, moved it up, <laughs> right? And then it became TULIP. Uh, so that's how we're looking at it. We're looking at it TULIP. So last time we looked at uh, the first point, uh, total depravity. We looked at what it means, what it doesn't mean. So if you remember, what, what, doesn't, what doesn't total depravity mean? Do you remember that? Exactly. We're evil to the core, but we're not as evil as we could be. And I think that's pretty just obvious looking at the world. Some people are really, really evil. Some people are kind of sort of evil. Some people don't appear to be very evil at all. But if you were to look at the heart, which God does, right? God does not look at outward appearance. He looks at the heart. That's what he told Samuel when Samuel was to pick the next king of Israel. Samuel was enamored by David's sons, how beautiful they look. The oldest one's like, this is king material. And God told Samuel, says, don't judge by appearance. You know, God judges by the heart. So, you know, you could look at all the things on the outside. And maybe people don't appear as evil as they could. They might even appear very good. But the good that they do is tainted by sin. And God's common grace sort of restrains our own wickedness, uh, which is why you see even unbelievers doing good deeds, at least outward good deeds, because God's common grace restrains that. But we looked at how what total depravity means is that mankind in its natural state is dead in its tr trespasses and sins. The Bible uses two illustrations to describe our fallenness and the first one was we are dead okay not like in monty python not you know still alive you know not quite dead yet no we are dead 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 in our sins and trespasses how how much of a response do you expect a dead man to make zero right Another illustration the Bible uses, he said, you know, Paul says in Romans 6, we are slaves to sin. We are in, emboldened to follow our master, which is sin. Uh, Romans 6 speaks of our slavery to sin. Anyone who, who gives himself over to sin is a slave to sin. How much freedom does a slave have? Zero freedom. Okay, that's the point. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. We are slaves to sin. And they speak to our inability that's the point. Being dead or being a slave speaks to our inability. That's the key point to take away. Our inability to respond favorably to God or even to acknowledge Him. It also means in our depravity, our corruption, every aspect of our being 
body, mind, and soul is affected by the fall. So it is, that's why R.C. Sproul likes to call it a radical corruption. It's a corruption to the core of our being. It affects everything. It affects our thinking. It affects our bodies, which is why our bodies decay and we have all kinds of problems. It affects our minds, the way we think. It affects our souls. You know, Paul talks about in Romans 1 how the, the, the person who suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness has a darkened heart and a darkened mind. So they reject the clear testimony of nature of the universe that declares the glory of God. They reject that. It's a truth they know in their hearts, but they suppress it. That's what Paul says. He, he, they suppress it. They try to push it down. They try to deny it. I don't know, it may have been John MacArthur who came up with this one, but it's like, they, it's like trying to keep an inflated beach ball underwater. That's how they try to suppress the truth. And you're, they're just, you, know, you have to really try to work to keep that beach ball, inflated beach ball under the water. So dead men cannot respond to anything. Slaves cannot break their own chains. And that's why oftentimes you know, the Bible talks about how we need a new birth. We need regeneration. We need a work of the Spirit to bring us from this. We need someone to set us free. And that's kind of where we left off last time. You have a hymnal handy. If you turn to page 898, our hymnals are pretty handy in the sense that they have the confessional standards in the back. Now I'm going to cheat because I have, if you have one of these, which I think we still have some copies in the front, they have in the back, they have a, a summary of all of them. So instead of reading all the words, I'll just read some words <laughs> from here, but the summaries are pretty good at summarizing this. So the way the canons, again, the canons of Dort talk about the, you know, the way they describe it here, the way they're set up, they're set up verse on these heads of doctrine, okay? Um, and they look at each one of the points of the Arminians, and they, they detail the reform position. So, you know, if you look at just page 888, the first head of doctrine is divine election and reprobation. And it goes on for 18 articles detailing the reform position on divine election and reprobation. And then after that, they have what they call a rejection of errors. So then you have a bunch of paragraphs that talk about we reject the errors of those who teach, and then they announce the error, and then underneath it, they give you the refutation of the error. So there are nine rejections of errors on that first head. We're looking at, for total depravity, we're looking at heads of doctrine three and four. They combine them. So it's total depravity and, and irresistible grace are kind of combined in one article here. But on page 898, I'm looking specifically at the refutation of errors. And that first one there, I'm just, you know, I'm not going to read it from here, but basically what it says is that the error is that original sin does not condemn all man, right? So they reject the errors of those who teach that it cannot properly be said that original sin in itself suffices to condemn the whole human race or to deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Now, if you, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but how would you define original sin? Yeah, so when Adam sinned, all right, it does, in a sense, refer to that first sin, 
But original sin is what then has infected the human race. So Adam's sin is imputed to us. Okay? Romans 5 teaches this. As in, you know, as one man's sin condemned the whole human race, so one man's act of righteousness justifies the whole human race. So you have, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. That's the point of Romans 5. You're either in Adam or in Christ. If you're in Adam, then that sin that he committed is passed on to us by what some confessional standards call natural generation, just by normal process of birth. Okay, So the original sin consists in we are alienated from God. So Adam's sin broke that communion that we had with God. It is, it is also communicated in the sense that we are corrupt in our nature. That's part of original sin. And we've lost part of the image of God. The image of God in us is broken. All right, We lost sort of that moral capacity to do any kind of good before God. And our, our minds are dark and all of that. All of that is part of original sin. And, and if you were to not commit any actual sins, which is impossible, but let's say by, by hypothetical argument, okay, just, just for the sake of argument, if you were to live your entire life and not commit an actual sin, you would still be guilty. You would still be guilty because you are in Adam. And his sin has been transferred to you. You have a corrupt nature. Now that is why it is impossible not to sin. Because your corrupt nature will work itself out in actual sins. And then you are judged for those as well. But even if you are not, that's why babies die. Right? Babies are, you know, we look at babies, they're innocent. In the sense that, you know, well, you know, obviously this little child that just came out of the womb has not committed any sins. But we see children die all, all the time, right? Children die in childbirth, all, even today. Much more so back in these days. And the wages of sin is what? Death. Babies die even though they're innocent because they are infected with sin. So even if you were not to commit any sin at all, you would still be guilty before God's bar because you are infected with Adam's sin. You are, in, as, Romans, or as Genesis 5 likes to say, uh, or I was like to say in Genesis 5 where it talks about the generations from Adam. It says, Adam having been made in the image of God made a son in his own image. Right? So Adam's son, Seth, was made in his own image. And what image does Adam have? A broken image. Right? A broken image. Everyone from Adam has this broken image. So the, the Arminians would say, no, original sin does not condemn all men. The reformers say, no, it does condemn all men. Uh, they also refute the error that says, the next article, that says that man did not possess goodness, righteousness, and holiness as part of his will before the fall. So in other words, man was not in a state of grace before the fall. That's what the Arminians say. Whereas the Reformers would reject that. And they reject that by looking at Ephesians 4.24, which says that in Christ we are restored to a state of righteousness and holiness. Uh, they, you know, they go on to reject the error of those who say that the will of man was not affected by the fall. That's, number th- that's uh, rejection of errors number three. Number four says the error that says that man is not totally dead in sin, but can still turn to God under his own power. Now we looked at it last week, this idea that man is not totally dead in sin. We looked at Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, which says quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah, Byron. 
yeah, the valley of dry bones, right? The bones don't move until the breath of God, excuse me, until the breath of God is breathed on them. So I can go on with this, but um, you know, it's good if you have one of these, and particularly the little summaries in the back are good, or just know that they're also in the back of our hymnals too. But I do want to move on to the next one, which the next one is unconditional election. All right, so we looked at total depravity. Now we're going to look at unconditional election. And again, if you're curious, um, we see that in Belgic Confession, Article 16. That's the original source that the Arminians would have used against that. Um, that would be on page, looks like 879. It's a short article, so I can actually read that. So on page 879, eternal election. The Belgic Confession reads, We believe that all the posterity of Adam, being thus fallen into perdition and ruined by the sin of our first parents, so there's that original sin, God then did manifest himself such as he is, that is to say, merciful and just, Merciful, since he delivers and preserves from this perdition all whom he, in his eternal and unchangeable counsel of mere goodness, has elected in Christ Jesus our Lord, without any respect to their works, just in leaving others in the fall and perdition wherein they have involved themselves. Now we're going to look at this a little more deeply, but really what we're seeing here is that eternal election is God looks at humanity, this is an eternity past, and he elects some and leaves the others in their sin. Now, there's one very important thing to notice here, because there's a debate, and I'm going to throw out some very fancy, highfalutin theological words, which is, you know, that's why you pay me the big bucks, right? So I can learn these words. There are the, there's two phrases. There's infralapsarian and supralapsarian. And then if you want, there's a third. There's the Labrador Retriever version of the story, too. But... In those words, okay, infra-supra, okay, you can kind of understand what that means. Infra is under, supra is over, or before or after. Lapse, sarian, if I say I lapse, what does that mean? I've, I've kind of fallen off the wagon, right? If, I, if, I, if, I, if, I'm, on, if I'm in AA, going through alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm on the wagon, I'm doing all the steps, and then I have a lapse, I've fallen off the wagon, I've had a drink, and I've kind of gone on a bender. So the lapse is the fall. Okay, so the idea is, how does God view the human race when he elects them? Does he look at them before the fall? That's superlapsarian. Or does he look at them after the fall? Is the fall in God's mind already there? And it's, you know, again, I have to back up because it's kind of hard when we're talking about what's in the mind of God in eternity past and to use phrases like before and after when we're talking before creation. So pardon my sort of human way of looking at this. But when God looks at humanity for election, does he already have in his mind the fall or not? That's the debate. Now, if, as we read the Belgian Confession, it seems to be implicitly infra because it says... God elects some and leaves the rest. He says after, you know, I forget how it phrases it in the first sentence there. The first sentence, that the posterity of Adam being thus fallen. So, I mean, 
the Belgic Confessions is already kind of admitting that God is electing with the fall already in mind, that the fall has logically happened already. And then he elects some out of it, and then the rest he passes over. So the reason I belabor this point is because some will say, well, you have double predestination. Right? So God elects some, and then he actively you know, judges or you know, condemns the rest. And it's, there is double predestination, but it's not what we call sort of equal. Okay? It's not the same in each case. He does actively elect some out of sin. The rest is sort of like a passive passing over. We're going to look at some scripture that uh, talks about this. But back to unconditional election. Sorry, I'm, I feel like I'm being very wordy here. <laughs> but what does it mean? So unconditional election means that God has chosen all those and only those who will be saved. And he does so without any conditions. He does so unconditionally. I'll say that again. Unconditional election states that God has chosen all those and only those who will be saved, and he does so unconditionally. Now, just before we get there, just start, get your finger in Ephesians 1. We'll get to it in a second. But get to Ephesians 1. But as you're turning there, I'm going to define what unconditionally means. It means that God, in choosing the elect for salvation, did so based on nothing in or foreseen in those whom he chose. But he did so freely according to the counsel of his own will. In other words, when God elects some for salvation, he's not electing them based on something he's going to see in them already. He's not electing them because they're better than the rest. He elects them because that's what he has decided in his own will to do. And we'll get into this a little bit more. But if you are in Christ, you have to realize it's not because you're special. It's not because God looked at you and said, oh, you, oh, you, you, I need you on my team. I'm going to take you because you're, look at you. And then says, he looks at another and says, nah, I'm going to pass that one by. It is not like that. It is not like that at all. So it means that God chose you based on nothing in you or foreseen in you. He did so freely according to the counsel of his own will. When we get done with this, we're going to realize that God is really the only one with what you could say a truly free will. We'll get to free will later because that's not in this point. It's in, I want to say, yeah, it's in the, Irresistible grace. We'll get to that one. I'm not sure sure when, Sue. I'm procrastinating. But if you look at Ephesians 1.4, it probably is nice to read from starting in verse 3. We see that, you know, Paul writes here, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Then verse 4 even as he chose us in him, that is, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So the elect were chosen before 
the creation of the world, before there were any people, before there was any world, before God made light, before God made, you know, separated the waters from the earth, before Genesis 1-1, God chose those who would be in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, if you skip down to verse 11, in Him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, that is the Father, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So the elect were chosen according to the counsel of God's will. Predestined, chosen beforehand. Your destiny was decided beforehand according to the one who purposes all things according to the counsel of His will. You flip back to Romans 8. Back a few pages to Romans 8. In Romans 8, starting in verse 28, famous passage, everyone knows this one. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Called, is it's the same root word as elect. Um, for those, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. But again, called, verse 28, according to God's purpose. According to God's purpose. And you can turn there if you want, or you can just mark the reference down. 2 Timothy 1.9. Where Paul writes here, I'll start in verse 8. I hate starting in the middle of a sentence. I hate when the verses start in the middle of a sentence. But that's just a pet peeve of mine. Verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our, about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose. And grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Again, you get that theme from Ephesians before the worlds. That's what the word ages means. Eons can mean world ages. Before everything began, God chose us. He called us. He, he saved us according to his own purpose and grace. So in a word then, the doctrine of election teaches that God is sovereign. That he is the one who is in control of all of this. According to the counsel of his own will, he has determined everything that comes to pass, going back to Ephesians 1.11. And by the counsel of his own will means that we, by that we mean that God consulted no one. He didn't ask my opinion. <laughs> All right, he doesn't ask your opinion. Should I save so-and-so? Well, God, I think, you know, yeah, he's a good person. You know, he pays his taxes on time. Uh, he comes to church regularly. Yeah, yeah, I think he can choose. No, God doesn't consult anybody. He doesn't consult the angels. You know, he, it's by the counsel of his own will. 
And God is the ultimate Supreme Court. There is no higher authority to whom we can sort of appeal our case or to whom God has to go and run things by. Now, if you look at what we've said already about total depravity, how man is incapable of coming to God, as how our sin has corrupted us to the core of our very being, unconditional election seems to logically flow from that. How can one who is dead in their sins and trespasses, who is a slave to sin, come to God? Right? The sinner in his natural state does not want to come to God. Romans 1 again. They suppress the truth. They run away from God. They do everything in their power to ignore and to deny the truth. Why would they come to God? How can they come to God? Unless God does something first. And the first thing He does is in eternity past, He elects some. If we're dead in our sins, God must choose us for we would never choose God. If we are slaves to our sin, God must free us because we cannot free ourselves. Now, let's turn in the time that's remaining, let's go to Romans 9. Because this is a passage that I think so clearly teaches this. That it should leave no debate. Now, if you remember, we looked at this in our study through Romans. I don't know exactly, Ryan. I don't, I don't remember the date. But um, we have to take it in context. We can't just rip Romans 9 out of context. So again, as Paul is going through Romans, he's arguing in the book of Romans, his, his main thesis is to sort of explain the gospel, to to sort of exposit the gospel in all its fullness. And he first goes on in chapters 1 through 3 to talk about how we're fallen, how man has fallen, how we have nothing, we are guilty before God's bar of justice. And then in the end of Romans 3, he says, but God who is rich in mercy, he saves us because of the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf, how we are saved by grace through faith. And then he goes in and explains how that has always been the case. It has always been God's program. Romans 4 says Abraham was saved by grace through faith just like, just like we are. He just believed in a Jesus that was yet to come. His faith was forward-looking. Our faith is backwards-looking to the cross. And then in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, he talks about the benefits that we get from being saved, uh, how we struggle with the flesh, yet how the Spirit empowers us and saves us. And when we get to the end of Romans 8, he has his great doxology at the end of Romans 8, and he praises God, and then he anticipates a question that says, well, what about the Jews? Because if no one is lost from God's love, right, and all these things were more than conquerors, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What about the Jews? Because they are God's chosen people. They were the ones that God made a covenant with. Yet, if you look at the church, you know, I'm just pretending to be Paul's first century Roman audience. If you look at our church, we're mostly Gentiles. If you look at all the churches you planted, Paul, they're mostly Gentile churches. How do you explain this? So Paul goes and takes a bit of an excursus in Romans 9-11 through 11 to explain the plight of the Jews. So that's the context. So starting in Romans 9, verse 1, 
He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So in other words, it's like, I swear to God, <laughs> what I'm about to say is the truth, only the truth and nothing but the truth. Verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's speaking about Jews here. Okay, Kinsmen according his, his fellow Jewish kinsmen. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The Messiah was a Jew. That's what he's saying. The Jews have had all of these benefits. Look at all the benefits the Jews had. The law, the, all this stuff, the patriarchs, the blessings, and the Messiah. But, verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now he's going to say, look, just because you are an ethnic Jew, just because you are circumcised and a member of the Jewish race, does not mean you are truly a Jew. He makes that point earlier in Romans 2, where it says, don't think you're a Jew just because you cut the circumcision off of your flesh, because that's physical. Don't think you're a Jew just because you glory in the law. You, it's the ones who do the law that are the true Jews. It's the ones who are circumcised in the heart are the true Jews. So not all Israel is from Israel. Verse 7, And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. This is, now he's going to make it a very obvious point because if you go back to the history of the Jewish people, is, uh, Abraham, who was Abraham's first child? Ishmael. Was Ishmael a child of promise? No. <laughs> Ishmael, was Ishmael circumcised? Yes. <laughs> he was not a child of promise. Who was the child of promise? Isaac, the one who was born of his own flesh and Sarah's flesh. So, you know, Paul's saying, look, just because you're a descendant of Abraham does not mean you're the people of God. It's more than just national descent. Verse 7, uh, through Isaac shall your offspring be named Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. In other words, ethnic Judaism does not mean anything for salvation. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So now he says, all right, you look at Abraham. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and then Isaac. Right, they were like 13 years apart. He says, okay, if that doesn't convince you, let's look at Isaac. Isaac had two sons. They were twins, born of the same woman even. And even before they were born, God said, I'm going to choose Jacob, not Esau. Before they had done anything. Very important verse there. He says, In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. Verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? So now he's answering another objection because people are going to read that. It's like, Well, that doesn't seem fair. Why was Esau rejected? What did he do? God's unjust. And he says, By no means. 
For he says to Moses, now he moves on to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. God is sovereign. I choose God. I'm not saying I'm God. God says, I choose upon whom I will have mercy. I choose upon whom I will not have mercy. It is not going to be based on anything you do or say to me. He tells that to Moses. Because he's going to reference Pharaoh in a minute. Again, a very important verse here. Verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. What does that tell you? You can't choose it. You can't work it. But on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh. Here we go, Pharaoh. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh is a case example. He's sort of like a case study in this truth that God has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. Pharaoh was raised up for this very purpose that God's glory might be shown through him in the, in the, in the, in the salvation of his people from bondage in Egypt. Pharaoh was God's foil. Does that seem fair? Well, verse 18 says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Another objection. Well, then how does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? I mean, that's a, that's a valid question. How can God blame me if, I, if, if he can harden me? And then Paul says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? <laughs> okay. At some point, you have to stop asking and answering the why questions, right? If you've ever had a child or a grandchild and you say, don't do this. Why? Because this. Why? You know, they can, just keep, they can ask why as long as you're willing to answer the why question. At some point, you have to say, what? Because I said so. I'm the parent. You're the child. Do it. That, that's kind of, you know, who are you to answer back to God? Why? Then he goes on and references an image in Jeremiah, the potter and the clay. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? All right, if I'm a coffee mug, why is my handle shaped like this? I want a handle shaped like that. Why did you do that to me? God's like, I'm the molder. I'm the potter. You're the clay. I'm going to make you how I want to make you. Has the potter no right, verse 21, no right over the clay to make out of the same lump? So again, here's that sense. If you remember, we talked about infralapsarian. I can't even say the words. Infralapsarian, superlapsarian. The same lump. I'm going to, I'm going to claim that means fallen humanity. The lump of clay that God has here in mind is fallen humanity. So out of the same lump, I will make one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use. So what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured, there's a passive sense to that word, with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So those whom he passes over, he endures them patiently for a while as their sin continues to build up and store up wrath for them in the day of wrath when that is revealed. In order to make known, verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which God has prepared, very active there, 
prepared beforehand for glory. So I can go on. But here, we've seen already that in this chapter, God or Paul describes why not all Jews have been saved. He points to the sovereignty of God. And he says, first, recognize that just because you're descended from Abraham does not mean you're saved. Because Ishmael was descended from Abraham and he was not part of the promise. And it says, and, and, and you know, just and he goes again. It's like, let me reemphasize my point because you have Jacob and Esau who were both children of, of Jacob or, or of Isaac. Yet God chose Jacob over I, uh, Esau. God sovereignly chooses to show His mercy on whom He does, and as verse sixteen says, so it depends not on human will. I can't choose it or exertion. I can't work it out, but on God who has mercy. God is the potter, we are the clay, and we are at time. So <laughs> I will we'll bring this, we'll come back to this again next week because there's objections to this, and we will look at those in a moment.